Well, there are two simple words that we use in our culture that are very ineffective. And those two words are, I'm sorry. Now that might be fine for a child to use and that's what children are taught and that's appropriate. But for adults, I'm sorry is not what you find scripture talking about needs to be done. Paul talks about in the world, there is a type of sorrow, but it leads to nowhere. In scripture, when somebody has true remorse, they express that remorse. They repent from that action and commit to not repeating it again. And they make recompense to those that they have hurt, whether that is in a sense of a financial one, or maybe it's their time commitment to work, to make things right, whatever it is. But in our culture, it's very popular to say, I'm sorry. We see people apologizing on the television, social media. We see a lot of adults that say, you know what, I'm sorry. But again, those two words don't really mean a whole lot in many, many contexts. I used to teach a class about life skills in the jails. One of those classes talked about apologies and there was an assignment to go and make an apology. Inevitably, it would go the same way. People would leave the class, get on the phone, call a family member and say, I'm sorry. The family member would respond, you're sorry after all you've done. And then the person in prison would say, I said, I'm sorry, you have to accept that. And it would lead to an argument. Chloe Madonis said it very well when she stated it like this, apologies are useful only if done right. She was brought into prisons to try to help families where one family member had committed violence and abuse against another family member. She worked with 73 families. Out of those 73, she had 96% success, meaning only three prisoners repeated their offense. Her plan was simple. She would gather the entire family, including the victim and the offender, and it was simple. They would make a true apology where they would express why what they did was wrong, why they knew it was wrong, how they had hurt the other person, how they had hurt the other family members, and committing to never do the act again. And here was the main key ingredient. They would have to do that on their knees. She would then have the family members of the victim also on their knees, apologize for not protecting them, not being there in the time when they needed them the most. Difference between I'm sorry and somebody showing true remorse. I'm not suggesting apologies need to be made on their knees, but perhaps that is appropriate at different times. It's a biblical principle though to show true heartfelt remorse making a commitment to not repeat the offense again and making recompense to the one that has been offended. Tony Robbins said it well, the quality of your relationships determine the quality of your life. We're here in this Lenten season where a lot of people are taking time to take inventory of their lives, maybe those they have wronged even. And what I suggest is a different standard than when people just kind of get the least effort involved and I'm sorry versus really stopping saying, you know what, if the quality of my life is determined by the quality of my relationships, one place to spend some time this Lenten season is to stop and think, who have I offended that I need to make it right? Rebuild that relationship. And most of all, to spend that time 
observing where we have fallen short of God's standards and seeking in prayer to, to express that turning from sin and our repentance. Again, we don't wallow in misery. We wallow in grace. But we're going to look at somebody, a very unlikely candidate, who is a trophy of grace in Scripture. And then we'll look at a modern-day example to hopefully compel us to say, as I observe these weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday, let me not simply do what I see everybody else doing, but let me do things the way Christ would call me to live differently with some reflection about what things need to exit my life, what things need to enter into my life. Again, Lent, the 40 days, Mark chapter 113 says Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Most of all, that 40 days we spend is based upon that statement in the gospel. Jesus, 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness, overcoming, overcoming the enemy who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And now he's gained victory for us over that very same enemy for our life. 1 John 3 Verse 8, here's the first half of it. The reason the Son of God appeared was to, and we'll fill in the blanks here in just a moment, what is the reason, John says, that Christ appeared? Back in the Old Testament, we're going to look at Joshua chapter 2. Joshua takes leadership when Moses dies. The generation that left Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, they perished in the desert. The new generation, led by Joshua, are now poised to enter the promised land. The first city they're going to encounter, Jericho, with the famous walls where none could come in and none could go out. Powerful city, corrupt city. And now Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Joshua sent two spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. It was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. Joshua sent spies into Jericho. Some people saw them. Report this to the king. The king comes to Rahab. Where are the spies? She hides them and tells the king, those men were here, but they've left. I don't know where they went. One of the things here that you see in the context of this story about Rahab is the incredible power of a trophy of grace she becomes in the midst of a world calling her to compromise. She lived in a city, again, that was very corrupt. And here was a king who was the leader of this corruption. And imagine the authority that he has. And he's at her doorstep and he demands answers. And she hides the men and tells him she does not know where they are. The pull to compromise, to just go along to get along. The pressure to just do what everybody else is doing. Rahab is going to stand out in contrast to that. And hopefully, again, this time of Lent, we stop and say, you know what? Where have I maybe compromised? Compromised the truth, compromised my holiness, compromised my commitment. 
and to move back into the right direction. Joseph McClendon put it well, the secret to change and growth is not willpower, but positive community. The secret to change is positive community. When you have others that are in the same journey to encourage you along the way, that's where change really happens the most. Maybe it's somebody trying to lose weight and somebody else comes along beside them and they partner up to go to the gym. That encouragement from that other person is very powerful. Somebody trying to quit smoking, they find somebody else that also is trying to reach that goal. It compels them to a different standard. Same for us as we walk in holiness. This is why the body of Christ is so important. Others are walking in faith during these 40 days of Lent. So hopefully that encourages us during the week to say when temptations come, when opportunities to compromise come, we stop and say, you know what? I know that other believers, not just here at our church, but around the world are walking in faith, some at risk to their very life. So therefore, I will stand fast. This is why it's so important we gather together for worship to encourage one another to be that positive community. Your presence here. You don't know who you might be impacting, your presence during the week, who you might be reaching, encouraging somebody by your own example, by your attitude, by your words. The secret to change, positive community during this time of Lent, may we recognize that all around the world, there's a community of believers striving to purify their lives, see things exit their life that are distracting them from Christ and adding commitments to their life so they can follow more closely after him. Psychologist Ann Rivers shared about a patient named Bruce that she saw for depression. He had gone to a hospital for an exam. The doctor told him that he had an advanced stage of cancer, had roughly six months to live. This man checked out of life. He resigned from his job, sat in his house, didn't eat, didn't have contact with anybody, he waited to die. Five months after that diagnosis, the doctor called, said, it's an emergency, you have to come to the office. Bruce went to the office, the doctor apologized profusely, I don't know how this happened, but we gave you the wrong diagnosis, your paperwork got mixed up. You don't have cancer. The secretary who was there at the office said when Bruce walked in, had trouble walking, shoulders slumped, he looked like a man on death row. It was 30 minutes later when he left the office, told he did not have cancer. She said in that 30 minutes, he looked half his age. He was joyful, youthful, energetic. As we've said so many times, belief is the drug. And what we believe about who we are in Christ, it impacts our very life day to day. Do you believe that you are more than an overcomer because greater is he in you than he in the world? Do you believe that during this time of Lent, he walks beside you, lives his life through you, and other believers around the world are observing this time to say, as he was in that wilderness gaining victory, I want to live day to day in victory over sin and the devil and not be caught up in compromise. Rahab's story, how important truly is it? 
Well, let's take a look at something here and we'll talk about how important her story really is. And again, to see ourselves in this picture of grace. Go back to Joshua 2, verse 8. Rahab said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. Notice here her confession. The Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She now moves into her own confession of her belief in God. And now her life is being transformed. And her life is being changed. And she's moving away from this culture she was caught up in, this Jericho. And she says, I believe that God is God of heaven and God of earth. And she looks at the men and here's what she says. Therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, I've shown you kindness. You show kindness, kindness to my father's house. And here's the key, she says, give me a true token or a true sign. Give me a true token or a true sign. She looks at the men, the spies, they're getting ready to leave in the middle of the night. She knows they're going to come back. There's going to be a battle with Jericho. She says, give me a sign. My family will be safe. How important is Rahab's story? The gospel of Matthew Chapter 1 is the genealogy of Christ. Only a few names here, key names throughout Scripture. You'll notice Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 says, Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. Then it goes on to Obed, Jesse, to King David. Here in the genealogy, the ancestry of Christ is Rahab. How important is her story of being trans- Lated from this life of compromise into the kingdom of light. She's in the ancestry of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter where we talk about the faith hall of fame, where all the great heroes of the Old Testament are listed, like Noah, Elijah, Isaiah, and how their faith transformed the world. And the writer says, of them, the world was not worthy. Notice Hebrews eleven thirty one. By faith, the harlot Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, did not perish with those who were disobedient. How important is Rahab's story? She's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She's in the hall of fame of Hebrews 11. That's what happens when a trophy of grace is taken and their life is transformed and they turn from their sin and embrace life in Christ. We close with Joshua 2, where we're told this. The men answered her, our lives for yours. Bind this scarlet cord in the window when you let us down. She said, according to your word, so be it. She sent them away, and she bound a scarlet cord in the window. Probably the most famous part of this story, the scarlet thread she ties to her window, the red rope that would have reminded Israel of the blood of Passover on the doorsteps and points evermore to the blood that Christ would shed, the scarlet thread of redemption that runs through every scripture all the way up to show us the life, death, resurrection of Christ. What would be the saving grace for Rahab? The scarlet thread. The saving grace for you, for I, 
the scarlet thread. We close with 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was what? Here's the NIV. To destroy the devil's work. The King James, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come into our life? To destroy the devil's work and to empower us to live in victory over sin, the enemy. So this time of Lent, may we have that same focus to say, that scarlet thread of redemption redeemed me to a life of true repentance, turning from sin, making right the things I've done wrong, committing to a different standard, knowing that the quality of life is the quality of my relationships, so I'll build into them with godly love and grace. Jim Cimbala, minister and writer, wrote this. It was Easter Sunday. I was so tired at the end of the day, I went from the edge of the platform, pulled down my tie, sat down, draped my feet over the edge. A wonderful service. Many people coming forward, the counselors talking with these people. I was sitting there and I looked up the middle aisle, about the third row, there was a man. He looked about 50, disheveled, filthy. He looked up at me as if to say, could I talk to you? We have homeless people coming in all the time asking for money or whatever. So I sat there and said to myself, and I'm ashamed of it, what a way to end a Sunday. I've had such a good time preaching and ministering. And here's a fellow probably wants money to go buy some alcohol. He walked up. When he got within about five feet of me, I smelled a horrible smell like I'd never smelled in my life. It was so awful. When he got close, I would inhale by looking away. I'd talk to him and then look away to inhale. I couldn't inhale facing him. So bad was the stench. I asked him, what's your name? David, how long have you been on the street? Six years. How old are you? 32. He looked 50. Hair matted, front teeth missing, why no, eyes slightly glazed. Where did you sleep last night, David? Abandoned truck. I keep in my back pocket a money clip that also holds some credit cards. I fumbled to pick one out thinking I'll give him some money. I won't even get a volunteer. They're all busy talking to others. Usually, we don't give money to people. We take them to get something to eat. I took the money out, and David pushed his finger in front of me and said, I don't want your money. I want this Jesus, the one you were talking about, because I'm not going to make it, and I'm going to die on the street. I completely forgot about David, and I started to weep for myself. I was going to give a couple of dollars to someone God had sent to me. See how easy it is? I could make the excuse I was tired. There is no excuse. I was not seeing him the way God sees him. I was not feeling what God feels. But oh, did that change. David just stood there. He didn't know what was happening. I pleaded with God, God, forgive me. Forgive me. Please forgive me. I'm so sorry to represent you this way. I'm so sorry. Here I am with my message and my points, and you send me somebody, and I'm not ready for it. Oh, God. Something came over me, and suddenly I started to weep deeper, and David began to weep. He fell against my chest as I was sitting there. 
He fell against my white shirt and tie. I put my arms around him and there we wept on each other. The smell of his person became a beautiful aroma. Here's what I thought the Lord made real to me. If you don't love this smell, I can't use you. Because this is why I called you where you are. This is what you are about. You are about this smell. And all things in Lent. May we begin to see other people as God sees them. The same as ourselves in need of a Savior who's been sent into the world to destroy the works of the devil so that we can live whole new lives.